Glad you're here. It's great to be here. Uh, it's a shock to me on days like today that anybody comes to church at all. Like, did you not walk outside? And the first thought that went through your mind, was it not like, yeah, honey, we're going to call an audible here. We're going to Torchies on first, and then we're going to hit the, right? I felt it. Can't really pull the plug that late in the game, but... Um, you know the word dread, right? You know what that means. I, I, I have this sense of dread about this morning, and I felt it for two weeks. And I don't know, and I'm just, I'm not going to shock, I'm not going to freak you out, but I'm just going to tell you, I don't know that I've ever dreaded speaking on a passage more than this passage. So hang on. Um, every word that I'm going to share with you this morning, every single word has been vetted. I've run it through four people that I trust, because I'm terrified when Paul gets nasty and starts hurling uh, some hardcore stuff. Um, I don't know how to handle some of this stuff except just to handle it and just kind of put it out there. And so we're just going to ride through this, okay? So the water might get a little deep, um, but we're going we're gonna to make our way through it. I'm not terrified to talk about sexuality because I don't know anything about it. If you know me, you know I've got five kids. <laughs> it's not that. <clears throat> I dread speaking about this, and I'm just going to be frank, is because the reason I dread this is because I think everything I learned growing up in church was either less than true, less than helpful, or just downright condemning. So I have no playbook on this, okay? There's no playbook. There's no Chilton's manual for this for me because there's, no, there's nothing to draw from that I would say is recoverable in a sense that I think puts sexuality into the balanced conversation that where we need to put it. Most of what I was taught was designed to scare me away from fornication. If you know what that word means, I, sex outside of marriage. As if sin management was the most important objective of the gospel. That's what I was taught. That's the angle that it came to me through. Now, you need to know this. When I hit the altar and 20, almost 23 years ago and married Allison, I was and she was 100% virgin. I have no regrets related to that. I somehow navigated the minefield of youth and made it to that wedding altar a virgin. However, fear motivated me into doing the right thing. It was fear. And here's what I know to be true about the teachings of Jesus. They go deeper than just mere compliance with the law, right? This is about the heart. And if I have to be honest with you, and I'm honest with, with my kids about this, the truth of the matter is, is I walked the aisle a virgin, but about half of a healthy human being. About half of what it takes to do marriage about half of the wholeness that it requires to actually be one flesh with another person. No regrets in terms of bad decisions, but absolutely no clue how to make it work. It was all based in fear. I'm just going to talk straight with you this morning. I warned you last week. If you were here last week, you knew not to come today anyway because the weather's great. And somebody's playing downtown. I don't know who, but if it's not Radiohead, it's not worth it. So that's just, that, there's that. So here's the thing. We have, we have cultivated a very intentionally, very intentionally cultivated a space right here in Bailey Middle in Shady Hollow, a place where judgment and shame has no place. It has no voice from this pulpit. We've cultivated that with great care uh, by choosing things we address and choosing things we choose not to address. We've done that over the years with great care. And the easiest way to handle a subject like this is to not handle it at all. Except the truth is, is that's its own answer, isn't it? And we can do better. We can do better. Here's a few things that I want to point out before we dig into the text. We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 6 today. A few guidelines to sort of keep our conversation within bounds. Number one, there is no moral high ground on this. Take condes, con, not condensation, take condescension from no one on this subject, okay? 
Nobody gets to brag about being 100% holy here. We are all broken in some way sexually, trying to find our way towards wholeness. Now, if you're single, you might think, well, yeah, because I'm, no, no. We are all, those of us who have been married for 30 years are still figuring out how to dig out from a sexuality that has been completely, completely painted the wrong way in today's society. And by and large, that's what we have consumed. So there is no moral high ground on this. We are all trying to find our way towards healing. Another thing to keep in mind, our identity is so much more than how we choose to live our sexuality out. Did you hear me? Our identity goes deeper than what you choose to do with your sexuality. We were all created in the image of God. Every period, single period, one of us. Thanks, Jen. No exceptions. Our identity is found in the image of God that we carry, all of us, every single one of us. To see a human being is to see someone that God created and God finds beauty in simply who they are, okay? Hold space for that. That might be alarming to you. Number three, our sexuality is a gift from God, and it's coupled with this unbelievable invitation to join with God in the creation and the recreation of all that that is in the cosmos. Do you realize what an amazing invitation it is to come together as human beings around the potential of a third-party present where new life can be present? What a staggering invitation that is. It's a gift from God. We're going to understand that word gift a little, little bit later when we talk about what Paul writes. Number four, as awkward and as unwieldy as our bodies can be, there is something deeply holy and deeply sacred about your body. Look at your hand. Your body. Think about what you had for breakfast. Think about what's going on. If if, if you don't buy that, think about what's going on in your mind right now. That's your body. That's part of your body. There's something deeply sacred about it. Our bodies are nothing less than the stage upon which God acts. There is no other way to experience God except through your body. So if your version of Christianity is somehow disembodied, you need to dig deeper. It goes deeper than that. There's something sacred about the way you were made. Number five, whoever you are, whatever you have done, wherever you have been, whatever you have survived, the overture of the Father towards you today is one of grace, forgiveness, and an invitation to start fresh. There is nothing that can't be healed. It can all be renewed, all of it can be renewed. Okay, so there's a couple of ground rules as we think about a very difficult passage today. So hang on, it's a tough one, but I'm going to do my best to avoid adding shame to whatever you're already feeling around the subject of sexuality. I do not believe the Holy Spirit needs any help from me in helping you identify where you need to draw the line and what sin is and what sin isn't in your life. Did you hear me? It's not my job to help you decide what's sin and what isn't. Why? I'll draw the line according to my eye. My eyesight is not what God has given you. You've got to draw the line with the sensitivity that comes with that for God, for you, for your life, okay? That's not my job. I don't believe the Holy Spirit needs my help. I'm not here today to tell you how far you can go with your boyfriend, your fiance, your roommate, your spouse, etc. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to intend, I'm going to just argue for the fact that he needs to function on that channel. So I'm not going to get on that channel and start yelling what I think is right and what is wrong. So in review... What was Jesus' great contribution to the rabbinical thinking of his day? Remember the formulation? You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you this. Well, this is what everyone is saying, but here's what I'm telling you. What's he, what's he doing right there? He's making the move essentially from compliance to heart transformation, okay? It's a move from the head to the heart as the primary location or the primary locus of transformation. It's the heart that matters, Jesus would go on to say. It's where it, 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 it was... 
not what comes out of the mouth, but what comes out of the heart, Jesus would say. They, they, you know, you've heard it said you cannot murder. Jesus says, well, anger comes from the heart. It's going to take you there. I'm telling you, you can't do that either. Well, adultery, well, it comes from the heart. If you so much as desire, it's not enough to sleep with the neighbor's wife. If you so much as desire her, you're all the way there because the point is not the head and the compliance, the point is in the heart. That being said, now hear me clearly. We cannot make the scriptures unsay what they say. But we must fight tooth and nail to not force the scriptures to say something that they simply do not say, even though we want them to. You get the tension? Talk about tension. I can feel it in the room right now. We can't make, we can't make it unsay what it says, but we also can't force it to say something that it could not possibly have been addressing. So we've got to be faithful to these two things, and these are the two poles that balance it all out for us. Number one, the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus. We've got to be faithful to the spirit and the posture of Jesus while at the same time trying to figure out how to be faithful to what the scriptures say. And before we read the passage today, I want to acknowledge that these very verses have been, for some of us, bludgeoning devices. These have been shaming and condemning tools to just grind it in your face how much you've fallen short. The passage today has been a wounding passage for some of us present. I'm sorry if this describes your experience. The most important thing, let's just remember, that God ever said was his son, Jesus Christ. The most important gift he ever gave us was Jesus Christ. Our only access to Jesus Christ is through the writing down of these events by eyewitnesses and others. So our only access is through the word, but let's never equate the two things as equal revelation of God, Jesus and the Bible. Jesus is the spirit by which all things are known to us, and the scriptures have to, be, have to conform to the spirit of Jesus. Jesus is the point. And let's never miss, miss those two things. And Jesus, interestingly enough, had a penchant for never deploying shame and judgment when dealing with sin. John three seventeen, For God has sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Okay, so those are the two pressures. What do scriptures say? What does scripture say? And what is the spirit of Jesus towards our situations? A whole space for those two things. Take a deep breath. You better hurry. Some of you are starting to turn blue. There's like a 20-degree differential in the room from this time last week. I don't know why it was 40 degrees last week, and today it's like 80. Or maybe it's just me. One person laughed. Thank you, Will. Will's in the house today. I know that laugh. So hear me now. We can do better than using the Bible to batter one another. We can do better than using the Scriptures to control and to shame and to manipulate each other. This is what I mean by keeping the balance between the spirit of Jesus and the scriptures. If we violate the law of love, the posture of Jesus towards a broken world, towards us, because of an angry, self-protecting, binary read of Paul, we have gained absolutely nothing. Did you hear me? If we fall out of love with one another in the way we do community because of our particular read of a passage, we've missed the point because Paul will fold all of this into 1 Corinthians 13 and eventually say, oh, by the way, love is the only law. To be in community is way more important than to be right, even about situations like this. No matter what Paul says, it cannot, it must not run against the spirit of Jesus, the welcoming, forgiving, always accessible spirit of Jesus. It cannot go there, or else it will become the way we divide and subdivide and the way we consider ourselves to be the right ones and them to be the wrong ones. And next thing you know, 350 Protestant denominations later, we're all claiming to be the right ones, and we don't even realize the joke. Because we're, we're, we're using the scriptures. I better not hold up a Lauren Winter book and act like it's the Bible. This isn't the Bible. Sorry. Actually, the title of this book is Real Sex. This is really not the Bible. 
I'll explain this in a minute. I'll explain this in a minute. But we cannot, we cannot use the Bible as a bludgeoning device to shame and push others in and pull others out. These things ought to be subjected and brought into submission to the spirit of Jesus, which is a spirit who brings all people close, even the most broken. All right, I'm about to get crazy. If it isn't the black church, I say I'm about to preach up in here, but I'm not. So with that balance in mind, always being willing to submit our biblical interpretation to community and to the spirit of Jesus, let's look at our text for today. And I'm going to read it today from the message. And I never do this for lots of reasons, but I can tell you later why. But today, I think this just says it so well, ways in which the NIV just says it in ways that, that we've heard so many times, I don't think we, we attach meaning to it. So follow along with me on the screen. Let's read today's passage. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Paul writes, just because something is technically illegal doesn't mean it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims. You know the old saying, first you eat to live, then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. Since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. In other words, it's a gift. God honored the master's body by raising it from the grave. He'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. And until that time, remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity as the master's body. Who's the master? Capital M. Come on, y'all. Yep, Jesus. You wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not, writes Paul. There's more to sex than mere skin to skin. And what's so fascinating to me, hold space there, is Paul's a single guy. Don't know how he got it. He gets it. There's more to sex than mere skin to skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As, as written in scripture, and he quotes, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitments and intimacy. Leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Didn't you, don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. You get what he's saying? He's arguing against this understanding that says, well, God saved my spirit and my body. Well, you know, it's just kind of struggling. No, 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 no. Paul is saying it's all one thing. The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in you and through your body. Here's the hard truth in a tweet, since tweeting is so popular, but this is not gonna get me in trouble. According to Paul, here it is. God redeemed your body, and he's going to want to tell you how to use it. And for people who are supremely comfortable with directing our own ways, this goes counter-grain, doesn't it? This rubs us wrong. Ain't nobody gonna tell me what to do, right? This is the point. God made your body, and now he wants to tell you what to do with it. Why? Because it's sacred. You might say, man, pastor, these are tough words. Not only is Paul suggesting that there's a particular way we're told to comport ourselves in our body, but the community of faith this ragtag group of people in South Boston, the community of faith is going to be the instrument, the interpreter that helps me understand those ethics. That's the message of the scriptures. 
the community of faith plays a role here. And I believe, as much as this might upset us, that sex belongs within the bounds of monogamous, mutually submitted, words for Paul, lifelong covenant relationships, period. I think that's where it's, it's most beautiful. I think that's where, it's, where it belongs. You say, wow, this is hard. It's uh, 2016. But how easy, it, you tell me, how easy is it to deal with your sexuality out of the context of marriage and commitment? How easy is it for you to give away your, the deepest part of you in spaces that you're not even given what you deserve in exchange? When you're not sure how long that person's gonna, how easy is, how's that working for you? This is tough stuff because your material reality is being infused by the Spirit of God, and it is by definition sacred, and that matters. Okay, so take a deep breath. Let's look at a few ideas in Paul in this passage. Just because something is technically not harmful to you or to someone does not mean that it's good for you spiritually, okay? In other words, there are things that feel great to the body that actually aren't great for us holistically. Now, what I was told as a kid was, you're gonna hate yourself if you ever do this. You know that's not always true. Did you realize that, youth group kids? That not every time kids that have sex, they're going to get an STD, and not every time they're going to wake up just regretting it, horribly depressed. It's possible, I think, to borrow the family car and make it happen, I don't know, at homecoming, and then wake up the next morning and think that's awesome. So, so it's not enough to say, it's not enough to say, oh, that was horrible, I feel horrible. No. There's more to it than that. But listen to me, listen to me for a second. There is some intense shared neuropathology in sex. There is no arguing with the reality that there, are some, there is some very deep and primal DNA that is being shared, and there are some deeply impactful things that are being interlaced when you go to this space with another human being. If you're super interested in some of this, talk to me later. There's a great podcast by Science Mike where actually he, he goes into some of that as a scientist. So number one, not everything that you can do ought you do because of its impact on you as, as a human being. Number two, Paul calls us to honor the gift of our bodies by treating them as a gift. This goes way beyond just sex. Consider food, addictions, mental health, unhealthy habits. All of these things affect that material space where the Holy Spirit overlaps with your reality. If it affects your mind, it affects how you experience God. Okay? And our bodies are a gift. Essentially, they are a radio channel through which to hear God and interact with God. And so they ought to be treated like that. Another point, and I'm not sure I completely understand this, but Paul makes this connection between the body of Jesus and our body. Giving away access to the deepest ways in which we, are, which we know and are known to someone for the purpose, some other purpose of, of glandular release or some sort of whatever is going on in your body, and for some sort of selfish fulfillment is way less than what you deserve in exchange for access to the deepest parts of you. Another point, sin, sin, uh, against the body, sins against the body are unique. As much as we would like to act like there's no big deal, sexual, sexual sin is really not that big a thing. Maybe it was in grandma's generation, but it's not that big a deal. There are lots of ramifications, spiritual, emotional, and physical. We cannot pull it back from that sacred place of exchange. We just can't do it. Last thought here, it's, it's possible to allow others to actually witness the glory of God through how you deal with what you've been given. Okay, remember we're dealing with the church of Corinthians and Paul is writing after he had been there and lived among them, after hearing some rumors of how they're kind of jumping the, jumping the tracks, 
Paul's writing this stuff specifically because there was division and disagreement on these issues, okay? Just like there is today. There is no pretending here that we're all going to agree on this subject. No way. We're not all going to agree on the same thing. But don't forget, by chapter 13, he's going to resolve all of his thinking, all of his suggestions, his commands, his instructions. He's going to fold them all in to this new idea, which is that love is supreme and love is the higher law. This passage about sexual sin comes right after Paul addresses this interesting little legal squabbles that the Corinthians were in, where they were taking each other to court. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue you. Well, let's go, let's go talk about that in front of the judge. And the onlooking community is looking at this little fledgling group of faith and saying, you guys are a bunch of phonies. You can't even talk to each other. How in the world are you going to ha- offer anything to us that we desire? So right after that, Paul connects this conversation about sex. And what's interesting is that they actually go together. Because when you demand what you want, and you refuse to give what they need, and this is how you're going to do relationship, it doesn't work in conversation any more than it works in sex. Does that make sense? Demanding your way, even at the loss of someone else's voice, or freedom, or property, or opinion, is never right. We call that violence. That's the connection. Sex that merely demands what it wants, demands what I think is right, takes no thought of the other party, is abusive and contradictory to the rules of how the new humanity works initiated in Christ, says Paul. It falls way short of what it could be when treated properly. Listen to me, married folks. This means you as well. Who's taking what's not being freely offered? Who's charging in and demanding things that are not being offered out of the out of the abundance of emotion and love? Who's, who's demanding and who's, who's laying down the law and saying it's going to be this way? Paul's going to say it's mutual submission. It's the higher law of love. You want to live well? Prefer the other. Italian, Mexican, you want to live well? Let her pick. That's a dumb example. Ask yourself this, and one day we'll go here and we'll just stay right here and we'll just make the whole thing about this. Why is pornography so pervasive in our society? Don't buy this law that it's only men. Don't buy it. Look at the new numbers. This is something being massively consumed by women as well. Why is it so pervasive? Could it possibly be because it provokes a totally self-centered way to get my agenda filled, my urge satisfied? There's no work involved. There's zero effort to meet the need of the other person. It's 100% selfish and self-indulgent. It takes no regard for the emotions, the body, or even the spirit of the other person or victim. It's easy and it's empty. And I wish I could tell you that I'm just saying this because I've read this. Trust me on this. It's a ruse. And it's all selfish. And you bring that into marriage, and you got yourself real issues. The Bible is very clear on the sacred nature of our bodies. The fact that Christ put a body on, very similar to the one that you are walking around the earth in today, ought to tell you that there is a divine nature to that meat suit you're wearing. You didn't get it, right? Somebody got it? M-E-A-T. John's suit smells like meat today because John ran a 5K before he came to church. I'm sorry, Johnny. (laughs) Does that make you wince? There is a a divine category. There is something divine about your body. The Old Testament paints the picture of a God who just sits back and watches us sleep. Not a creepy clown God. I'm talking about a God who watches us sleep who takes such pleasure in how your body works, how it heals itself, how you, how you 
learn new things, how you build new, new connections, how you come into the world and you make a contribution through things that you're pulling out of nowhere. You're bringing them into synapses and neuropathology. You're putting them into language and people are hearing them and things are changing. The world is impacted. God takes pleasure in your body. It's of a sacred category and ought to be treated that way. You know, it's interesting, the most pervasive heresy that has ever hounded the church is this idea that bodies are evil, they're dirty, they're filthy. We're just spirit and our body is nothing. Hogwash, says the church, and has said the church multiple times over history. Again and again, the church has called that heresy. The fact is, the body and the sexuality that goes with that body has a central role to play in the kingdom of God. What I'm suggesting today is not a fear-driven ethic of sexuality designed to make you behave a certain way. I'm suggesting a total recovery of our theological understanding of the body and how it fits into God's redemptive work in the world. So if we're going to get anywhere today, we're going to have to unthink some things we've thought. We're going to have to unlearn some things we've been taught. Number one, myth that we have to move away from. Myth number one, that sex is is casual. I don't know who wrote that first, but it's the way people look at it today. Sex is casual. This generation is telling us that sex is really not that big a deal. Oh, it's just you guys are so Victorian. It's It's your generation. It's not that big a deal. Here's what the Bible says. There's no such thing as casual sex. Not in marriage, not outside of marriage, not after marriage, not before marriage. There's no such thing. This idea springs from a misunderstanding of how the body functions as a sacred category of God's own speech. I'm going to read you a quote from a book because I can't say it like Lauren says it. Lauren Winter, she writes a book called Real Sex. Wrote a, some, maybe even a better book before this called Girl Meets God. In the Christian universe, the individual is not the vital unit of ethical meaning. Hang on, wrong, wrong text. We'll get to that one. But if you read anything with, with gusto, people think it, it matters, right? I learned that from my mom. <laughs> Sex is casual. Listen to this. Bodies are central to the Christian story. Now listen. Creation inaugurated, inaugurates bodies that are good, God said so. But the consequences of the fall are written on our bodies. Our bodies will sweat and we will labor in the fields and our bodies will hurt as we bear children. And most centrally, our bodies will die. If the fall is written on the body, salvation happens in the body too. The kingdom of God is transmitted through Jesus' body and is sustained in Christ's body, the church. Through the bodily suffering of Christ on the cross and the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, we are saved. You see the narrative now? It's been about bodies the entire time. Bodies are not just mirrors in which we see the consequences of the fall. They are also, in one theologian's phrase, and she's quoting Susan Harvey here, where God has chosen to find us in our fallenness. Bodies are who we are and where we live. They are not just things God created with us, but means of knowing him and abiding in him. And therefore, there is no such thing as casual sex. You with me? We've got to tear that down. We've got to do the hard work of tearing that down in our mind all the time. That's a background loop that runs constantly. Well, it's just a kiss. Mm-hmm. Number two, sex is casual, number one. Number two, sex is just, it, it's private. It's, it's a private matter, right? Separating our private lives from the realm of our public interactions with those around us fundamentally ignores how we are made. We are not, as it were, we are not, as it turns out, auto- autonomous little individuals just bumping around in a world that we just, that's just all within. If there's no community, there's no conveyance of meaning or ethics. There's no definition of, of what any of this is about. So there's no such thing as private 
as we've been taught, there's private. That's just a way of saying, you know what? Don't notice when I do things that are wrong. That's private. That's just between me and this other person, right? I don't want to waste a ton of time here, but just know that the concept of individualism as conceived by modernity runs directly counter to the world that Jesus initiates and that Paul writes about. It runs totally counter. Let's, let's, let's read another quote because, again, I think it, it helps. In the Christian universe, the individual is not the vital unit of ethical meaning. For Christians, the most basic images, metaphors, and science are corporate. The basic unit of ethical meaning is the body. It's the community. This talk about community is not mere metamorphizing. metamorphizing. The community has a role in making ethics. Paul makes this clear when he instructs the Galatians to hold one another accountable for sin. Brothers, he writes, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently, but watch yourself that you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. We are corporate by definition and the law of Christ will always push us into community. There's no way to get this stuff lived out on your own, guys. It doesn't exist like that. Sex doesn't exist like that either. It doesn't exist in that category. It is corporate. It has, if you don't think I'm I'm telling you the truth, ask how many people get pregnant in high school and bring kids into the world because there's something deeply corporate about that exchange. It has impact. It has rippling impact of concentric circles to all of those around you. We've got to pull back our mind that says, listen, it doesn't matter. It's just between me and her, between me and him. Nope, there's nothing private about how we live our lives. It all flows directly into every relationship we live. Myth number three. Good sex can't be synonymous with the boring, average, daily reality of midlife married lives. Boy, if you watch the media, you would think that it takes fast cars and slick clothes and really expensive drinks, and you might think that it takes long stem roses and exotic locations and crazy bed and breakfasts to make sex work. The kind of sex that today's culture seems to say is going is, is to be the, the, the thing worth, worth having is so far beyond our reach in midlife. It's bring children into the world. They wreck it. The house is not like it looks on TV. None of that is livable in that way, not even for the people who we assume it is. Nothing could be further from the truth than this myth that says sex, good sex can't exist in real life. One more quote, and I'll quit boring you with Lauren Winter. Love, sex, and marriage to partake in their transcendent mission of revealing God's grace must embrace life's decidedly untranscendent daily goings-on. Did you catch that? To take on that rapturous space in which we're caught into something amazing, it's going to have to do that from your daily life, from your bed half-covered in laundry from yesterday. You get it? Listen to this. In a Christian landscape, what's important about sex is nurtured when we allow sex to be ordinary. This does not mean that sex will not be meaningful. Its meaning instead will partake in the variety of meanings that the ordinary life offers. Sex needs to be clumsy. Amen. It should at times feel awkward. It should be an act we engage in for comfort sometimes. It should also be allowed to hold any number of anxieties, the sorts of anxieties for existence, for, for, for instance, uh, we might feel about our child's progress in school or our ability to provide sustenance for the family. It can accommodate all of those things. Sex becomes another way for two people to realistically engage the strengths and foibles of each other. Not only sexual intercourse is transformed as we allow it to take on the varieties of, this common, of the commonplace, the varieties of the commonplace transform themselves, are, are transformed themselves. If we allow sex to be ordinary, we might better understand that human love is forged in 
say, time spent cooking together or picking up one another's laundry or in claiming our children or calming our children's fears. Through sexual practice, we come to find each other fallible. We come to love each other for the way that we see each other creating very human lives out of these fallibilities. It's a myth that says it cannot coexist with the reality of your life. But you say, but you don't know. You don't know my kids. You don't know my situation. You don't know he works the third shift. You don't know. Guess what? It is one of the biggest lies ever told that that's not the perfect soil in which to grow lifelong love. How do, how, go to any bachelor party you want to go to, and what are they telling you? Oh, man, it's over now. The good sex is over now. Boy, could, how insulting is that? Could anything be further from the truth? It's in accommodating the ever-unfolding realities of our messy lives that real love happens. It's in the ordinary. It's in the quotidian. It's in the daily. It's in the, the functional reality of kids going to school and kids going to college and job and career moves and changes and switches and saggy bodies and broken feet. <laughs> Don't let your mind go there. So hear me now. Hear me now. I want to get back to this. I bring no condemnation or shame for anything that you've ever done or decided or engaged in or anything that's ever happened. I bring no shame or condemnation, believing that the Holy Spirit can bring conviction. I bring no condemnation. It's not, it's not even on the table. So we have someone learning to do. No big surprise. Think, think of the world we live in. I'm not here to tell you what you can and you can't do with your sexuality. I am here to argue for a total rediscovery and complete reclaiming of our sense of how our bodies fit into the redemptive plan of God. And if we can understand the sacred nature of our bodies, we don't even have to tell ourselves not to drag it to that place because we would never give it away for so little. We would never give it away for such a cheap price. For what? A moment and a risk my entire life, my entire career, my family, a Risking this for five minutes? Are you kidding me? If I understand my body to be a sacred category that God infuses with his spirit, I'm not going to take it there. I'm not going to go there. But it's going to take a total reclaiming of how we understand our bodies to interact with God. If our bodies are literally the interface of heaven and earth, which I believe that they are, then we must treat our sexuality the deepest, most primal way of knowing each other with great care and great discipline. And like every other gift God has ever given us, if we give it back with open hands, it becomes something exponentially bigger than what it was to begin with. Think of your resources. Think of the five loaves and the three fish or however many fish and loaves I forget at the moment. Think of, think of the, the, the nothingness that this little offering could be to feed the multitude of 5,000. But it's in the exchange of giving it back to God with open hands that it becomes something that everyone talks about for every generation here, thereafter. Our sexuality, the way of being in the world, our body, our physical body, and the way we train it and discipline it and, and conduct ourselves in community is the same kind of resource. You give it back to God, and God will take it to places you've never believed. It's been given to us as a gift, says Paul. Treat it like it was the body of Christ, the body of Jesus himself. So listen, we're wrapping up. I know this is not easy subject matter to address. I'm not sure if I can count on a single hand the times I've ever heard this passage preached on in church other than to condemn and shame. We're dangerously close to some triggers here, and I know these triggers. I've got them, and you've got them. You push this trigger, this shame trigger, and the whole thing implodes. We're dangerously close to triggers, and so I want to just hang there for one second. Only you know where you've been. Hear me, hear me. It's okay. 
Yeah, but you don't. It's okay. You know, it's funny. When Jesus breaks into our lives, he always seems to focus on a better future, doesn't he? He always seems to focus on a better way to live, a truer narrative of who we are. He always seems to focus on a more complete way of loving moving forward. To some degree, listen to this, it doesn't matter what's happened to you or what you've done in the past. To some degree, it's irrelevant to the work of Christ. I don't mean it's unimportant. It matters. It deeply matters. I'm just saying that it doesn't have the power enough to keep you captive if you choose freedom. Nothing you've done can, 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 can't be forgiven. Nothing you've done has to live with you forever. The question is, what are you going to do with what you've seen and heard today? How are you going to look at your sexuality and the decisions that you make, whether you be single or engaged or married or divorced, how are you going to look at that in the light of what Paul is saying? And how are you going to move forward? Some of you have been treated... Uh, some of you have treated your sexuality casually and you've given it away. For a couple of beers and a couple of hours on 6th Street, you've just given it away. Some of you have done that. You might need to renew your resolve today and give back to God something, uh, something precious that you've just treated as, as if it wasn't. Maybe the decisions you've made, you need to give those back to God and he needs to teach you, what you, what you how much you matter to him in return. If this is you, be bold. Take a stand. If relationships crumble because you pull this stuff back, then let them crumble. They were never meant to sustain the reality of who you are anyway. I don't mean to sound condescending, but trust me, if a friendship can't tolerate you pulling back sexual interactivity, then it, you can do better. The answer is either that, they'll survive, or something better. Trust me on that. Sorry to get all dad, father of the bride on you. I've got an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old and twin 13-year-olds and a 9-year-old coming up, and they're all girls, and trust me, there isn't a night that goes by that I don't think of these things. The bottom line is if you treat it casually, you can be renewed. Pull it back. Take ownership. Pick a new direction. Some of us today have been assaulted or victimized by some lesser version of love that couldn't accommodate your voice and your freedom. It was all about demand and take. And some of you are wounded because of that, and you need to find healing. If that's you, contact me. We can talk about it. We've got counselors in the church that can help you. If that's what you're struggling with, that's what you're towing along, trust me, there's a better future than living in the shadow of that. You didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Those you love don't deserve the ramifications of that. You can do better. God can renew it. He can renew it all. It's like a river you churn up. Just wait a moment. It'll run clear again in just a moment. Jesus is moving us forward to a better outcome. So maybe that's you. Maybe still others might need to, need to repent for being the victimizer, the one who was demanded and taken and stolen and cheated and grabbed things for yourself that weren't being freely offered. Even in marriage, maybe this is you. Maybe you so disagree with the way your wife or your husband sees the world that sex is an angry space where you just, ah! And maybe you need to pull that back and start a new love story in your life based on 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know where you are today. I can tell you one thing. I'd rather be riding motorcycles right now than preaching on this text. <laughs> I got the short straw. I want you guys to let Brandon know when he gets back. Dude, seriously? But just hear this last, this last idea. It's never too late. It's never too late. The work of God is always forward. It's always moving in a new direction. It can always recreate. It can always refresh. I don't know what your shame trigger is related to this. I know what mine is. 
So my invitation to you this morning would simply be, let's just give this to God. Paul gets downright hardcore. There's places where he's going to say, if you struggle with this, you have no role to play in the kingdom of God. And, yet, and then Paul's going to say, but of the sinners I am, consider me the president of the sinners. I'm the chief of the sinners. And he's going to say, this is bad, and this is bad, and this is bad, and you ought not do this, and you're not. And then he's going to say, but, but don't anybody cast judgment because we're all guilty. There's no high ground here. We're all moving from some place to another place.